Section 2 of Living on Half a Dime a Day. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Living on Half a Dime a Day by Sarah Elizabeth Harper Monmouth. Section 2. Thus mind fought the battle with despondency, in which injustice, wrong, and misfortune threatened to engulf it. There were enough to prescribe society, the diverting of attention by outside objects. But society, such as lay around me, did not present anything worthy or engaging. To one who had once and again proved its hollowness and false appearances, its insincere professions of kindness and good faith, it was sickening and revolting. I shrank from it as a burnt child dreads the fire. It seemed unfeeling and cruel to urge one in my circumstances to go into society. There my mendicancy would be thrust upon my consciousness in strongest shades of contrast with former ease of condition. Under my own roof I was not humiliated beyond endurance. I kept my self-respect there, but if I attempted any moving about in former circles, the comparison of present with past condition forced itself on me with such startling vividness that I was overwhelmed and felt as if going distracted. Everybody was trying, consciously or unconsciously, to adapt themselves to my new situation, and whether it was by an increased carefulness to show attention, or a haughty distance of manner, or a condescending patronage, the one was about as killing as the other to encounter. And further, my dress was not equal to the demands of society. Had I seen fit to forego my reading and devote my utmost dime to it, I must still have been a shabby appendage at a parlor party. If I could have had access to a company of benevolent workers, persons who had a really noble and useful purpose for which they lived and labored, it would have been as power and inspiration to one in my depression and pain. With all of life wrenched away at once, as it were, its long-accustomed ways and habits forced into violent and sudden change, means gone, health gone, the friends that had been around me in the arduous work of a term of years, gone, a ruin in the midst of ruin, as I seemed to myself, if I could have entered in amongst earnest workers, and added a mite for the aid or relief of other sufferers, it would have been as the joy of salvation to me, for in my own casting down it seemed as if the woes of all humanity through my heart made a thoroughfare. I was afraid to read of the fearful sufferings of the famine-stricken in India. All their million pangs seemed gnawing at my vitals, yet such recitals had a terrible fascination. I would return again and again to the reading of them. I could picture their pangs, desperation and despair, down, down, till starvation had finished its grim and horrible work. And I would long to feed them all, for I was full of pity for their lower wants. But at length I would come back to the thought, God seeth and taketh cognizance of all these things, and to him with whom a thousand years are as a day, 
what an insignificant speck and atom must this earthly life appear and yet because it is so fleeting and small the more would one like to be doing the little they can for the benefit of their fellow beings the more they would long for some outreaching beyond self and so because i had nothing more than ever i wished to help all who were in the same condition i always held in reserve a dollar or two for any special call of charity and a pittance for the bible and mission cause i could hardly have consented to breathe without a single cent to bestow in benevolence a person who would be willing to be an unmitigated mendicant would not be a person but to return to my struggle with and against material wants with the aid of my father's old overcoat i subdued a good many of them for the time being as has been already related the succession of the seasons demanded changes in my wardrobe a flannel gown was not suited to july and august nor could i be wearing out in warm weather what i should so need in cold i thought about cutting up an old allendale bedspread to make me a grand white wrapper but this i rejected as a temptation to reckless extravagance how should i ever possess myself of another counterpane and this one would answer a number of years with care and darning then i unfolded and scanned two red and white tablecloths in small checker work i should never spread tables again for visitors these cloths were not of much use they had served some years and had holes and stains they would make me a cool and serviceable wrapper not becoming and odd but then few would see me wear it and poverty must not expect to consult taste with freedom but then to wear a tablecloth for a dress to take that on which food had been spread out for the support of the body and make of it a covering and protection for the person would the tablecloth be elevated or lowered by such appropriation it would be a divorcement from its natural uses i refrained my scissors for a time though i might never want a tablecloth again i would wait and plan a while before making the red checkered ones into a summer wrap to buy a few yards of cambric or calico was out of the question there was a fear of not bringing the year around by the most rigid economy one day behind the door of a dark closet in an old room where a widow's goods were stored of which i made no use and entered but occasionally i put my hand on a cotton garment and rather wondering it should be there took it to the light to see what it might be it was a chocolate and white print dress that had been my mother's i recollected of having given it to the girl who helped me through her last illness directly after her death and burial the girl had at that time occupied this old chamber. It appeared she had not taken the dress away with her, and year after year had passed by with it hanging in solitary disuse behind the dark closet door. It was almost as if my mother herself had come back to me. It brought such a vision of her as she was in her last days, her little bowed trembling figure clad in the small figured calico wrapper my own nimble young fingers had made it certainly seemed as if in this hour of need her arm reached from the unseen to offer aid to offer what had been her own and mother-like to offer her all take it and wear it it has stayed for a time like this the mother voice seemed to say 
so I brought it forth, touching it with a half-reverent awe. It was not long enough for me, but it had been made before the era of gores. There were five wide breadths in the skirt, so I could remove a whole one, divide it in three parts, and fold the remaining ones onto it. And whenever I caught a reflection of myself in a mirror moving about, it seemed as if it was my mother come back to me, as if in my loneliness, loss, and pain, she had come and clothed me with herself. So the dress supplied far more than my bodily needs. It was company and comfort to my mind as well. And if tears rolled down and wet it sometimes, as the sight of it recalled but too vividly the blessed years, when sympathy, protection, and love were my abundant possessions, they were soothing, relieving tears. For I said, Mother still is somewhere. The going years are bearing me toward her. I shall hear her voice and have her love again. In life's supreme moments, when stern realities press close and hedges in on every side, how does the mere superficial fall to naught? How trivial and below respect appear the occupations and pursuits of worldlings? Truly, what shadows they are and what shadows they pursue. I saw people arrayed in finery and marveled that I could ever have done the like. I pitied the short-sighted, low-minded creatures and felt ashamed for them, absorbed in trifles, as if their clothes were their all. Everybody is as God made him, and oftentimes a good deal worse, says Cervantes. Very true. There is a better side to every nature, which, if cultivated, may bring forth passably good fruit. But it is too often left to neglect to be overgrown with rank and noisome weeds. It requires thoughtfulness, effort, self-denial to nurse it into growth, and most people dislike such labor as this. It is easier and pleasanter to go with the crowd and be one with them, live for the present moment in the gratification of the senses, not the least ashamed to admit, say it even self-approvingly, it is my aim to take the first care of myself and live just as long as I can. This is on a level with, eat as much as you can, it is all you are sure of. Some are sure of considerable, even if this is all. The kingdom of heaven can never come till everybody says and acts up to that saying, It is my chief aim to help others, nor do I wish to live longer than I can be useful in the world. He liveth long who liveth well. Often I saw people rolling past in easy carriages, but the sight awoke neither envy nor longing in my heart. I was rather glad to be rid of it all. I had always preferred a walk to a ride, and style, circumstances, had placed riding beyond my power. Pain and apprehension of accident, having the sore crippled arm, made riding something to dread and avoid as much as possible. I was distressed if asked to ride and had to refuse. I suppose some lady is wondering by this time what I did for a bonnet and it is an easy task to give information on this point. I simply went without one. Hat or bonnet I had not for four years. As I make this assertion, I have a misgiving that it will not be credited. I feel that it is an unparalleled one in the annals of modern life and custom. 
yet I could lay my hand on the book and solemnly assert its truth. A woman four years without a bonnet? In this enlightened land? In the latter part of the nineteenth century? Not a particularly old or sick woman either, and one who read Mrs. Browning, the best magazines, and all the leading divines of the age at home. Was she demented? It is perhaps not for me to say. I can only admit that if I went abroad, I wore a romance on my head instead of a bonnet, not the Blythedale. A false appearance, a deceitful show, wrapped about in a screening veil, some shape of a hat destitute of trimmings, its barrenness concealed in friendly folds of barege. It was my one deception in dress, and I deemed it a pardonable, yea, a commendable one under the circumstances. I would rather wear a romance than a mortgage. I knit some winter gloves of raveled black worsted, and, for the rest, one pair of lisle thread went through four seasons. They were washed from slate color to dirty white, and dyed in tea several times. I always felt my poorest when I wore them, and sat shamefaced and silent, as if struck dumb at sight of my own abjectness. The careful darns betrayed a watchful anxiety ever on the stretch, a ceaseless, laborious endeavor to be decent, and were, as so many not-to-be-mistaken proofs of poverty, unwilling, extorted confessions of want. However hard it may be to do without the comfort, abundance, or elegance which may once have been our own, it is doubtless not a poor and useless lesson to learn how much we can do without, and yet suffer no essential loss of what is noblest and best. To fall or to rise from the adventitious to the real is, in truth, not a misfortune, for such as live in a vain show, when the power to make a show is gone, all is gone. But if life has deeper springs, then it can survive a drought, and make for itself some greenness and fragrance in a bare desert of poverty and pain. All that is adventitious, all that is human, may fall away from us. What are our resources then? Have we any? The trial will prove us, test our strength, and show of what metal we are made. A novice can manage a sailboat on a smooth sea under a smiling sky, when it does not need any managing. But let the winds roar and the breakers come, and the boat will go to the bottom unless there is a skilled, courageous hand at the post of duty. So any poor, weak life voyager can manage a calm. It is the managing of the crisis that is the test. End of section 2